In Wednesday's weekly email, I shared that I planned to preach on the most successful prophet in the Bible, a prophet whose life has a powerful message for us today. So, which prophetic all-star am I referring to? Uh, Sandy Bremerton suggested John the Baptist, which is a great guess since all of Jerusalem went to see him. And Jesus did say that no one who's ever been born is greater than John the Baptist, so I'll see the point that John is greater. But the most successful prophet in the Bible has to be Jonah, the guy who spent three days in the belly of a whale. Now, we probably don't think of him as successful because he's most famous for running from God. When God tells Jonah to go east to Nineveh, he does the opposite and sets out due west for Joppa. Now, Jonah has good reason to avoid Nineveh. Nineveh was in Assyria, and the Assyrians invaded Israel. They killed the men, raped the women, and forced everyone into slavery. Now, Jonah lives a long time after that happened, but the memory is strong. I mean, the Assyrians might as well be the devil. They were the enemy if there ever was one. So, when God tells Jonah to go east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west. And he just keeps going until he hits the Mediterranean Sea, at which point he climbs on a boat and keeps heading further west to Tarshish. But while he's on the boat, a great storm arises. The boat's about to sink, so the crew starts looking around for someone to blame. And Jonah, Jonah speaks up and says, eh, it's probably me. Throw me overboard, and that should take care of it. Jonah would rather die than turn around and go to Nineveh. So the crew throws him overboard. But God provides a giant fish to swallow him up for three days. Basically, uh, Jonah's like a kid who tries to run away from home, but just ends up getting put in the smelliest timeout ever. But it works. When the fish spits out Jonah, God says again, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah says, fine. So... Jonah goes to Nineveh. He walks through the city shouting, Repent or be destroyed. And lo and behold, they all repent. Immediately. Every single person. Jonah becomes the most successful prophet in the whole Bible. I mean, no other prophet has a 100% conversion rate. No other prophet changes the hearts and minds of what appear to be the world's worst people. Thanks to Jonah, Nineveh is saved. And that's where we're going to pick up today, in Jonah chapter 4. But before we hear the scripture, let's pray. Loving and gracious God, we give you thanks for your spirit and your word, and we pray that through your spirit, we may hear once again your word for us today. Amen. 
Jonah 4, 1 to 11. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But Jonah went out of the city, and he sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade. Then the Lord God provided a shrub. And it grew up over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about the shrub. But God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then, as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. He begged that he might die, saying, It's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, Is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, You pitied the shrub, for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. So to recap, Jonah tells his enemies to turn or burn, but what he really wants is for them to burn. So when they turn and repent, It makes him so mad, he wants to die. Jonah can't imagine living in a world where his enemies become friends. And honestly, I can understand the impulse. When I think about those who've done me great harm, those who've hurt my loved ones, those who've oppressed and exploited the most vulnerable folks in our society. When I picture them, I don't think, gee, I hope they repent and are forgiven. Now emotions swell inside me and and I want some sort of public denouncement where the whole world learns just how vile they have been. It, It feels better to take away someone's power than to have them use that power for good. I mean, because that feels like justice. But that's not the kind of justice God is interested in. God's justice is not based on merely flipping power dynamics. God's justice is rooted in indiscriminate love that dismantles the oppressive nature of power. That was a little bit thick of a sentence. Indiscriminate love that dismantles the oppressive nature of power. What I mean by that is that God doesn't need the Ninevites to pay. The Ninevites are children of God who are 
worthy of love and forgiveness. And God wants to help them transform their lives through receiving that love. And, and that approach that, as Jonah calls it, that, what does he say, that steadfast love and mercy? Now, this is a good news when we're the ones seeking God's loving embrace. But it's really hard to swallow when that same grace is offered to people who hurt us. And it gets even harder when Jesus weighs in on the topic. Because Jesus teaches that it's not only God who offers loving forgiveness, but that we are called to do the same, even if our enemies aren't repentant. He says, you have heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you. And that feels impossibly hard. How in the world do we do it? How do I love someone who thinks it's right and good to separate kids from their parents and lock them in jail because their parents fled a desperate and unsafe situation? I mean, what's, what's that even look like? Well, Jesus says to pray for them. And and I don't think this is self-righteous prayer like, God, please help them see that they were wrong and I am right. No. I believe Jesus wants us to pray for our enemies so we can see their humanity. See them as no different than us, as created in the image of God. Jesus wants us to pray for our enemies so we'll see them as worthy of love worthy of God's love, and worthy of our love. Pray for our enemies, because it's the first step down the path towards loving them. And love is a gift of freedom for them and for us. I mean, it is, it is striking that when Jonah, Jonah objects to God's forgiving the Ninevites, you know what God doesn't do? God does not appeal to a cosmic set of right and wrong. God does not appeal to God's infinite power and wisdom to do whatever God thinks is right. No. Instead, God asks Jonah, Is your anger a good thing? This is not about the Ninevites. It's not about right and wrong. It's about Jonah. His inability to forgive has led to a life of anger and isolation. So when God urges him to forgive the Ninevites, God's really offering him salvation and liberation from this world of anger that he's constructed. Booker T. Washington wrote, I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. Our anger 
our hatred, our intolerance. It narrows our soul. Now, it, it might feel like protective armor at first, but it becomes a burden we have to carry around, and it can get awfully heavy. And I don't know about y'all, but in this moment, when battle lines have been drawn around immigration, racial quality, LGBTQ rights, climate change, COVID, and what, frankly, just about everything. Like right about now, I'm, I'm vulnerable to some self-righteous anger. So, so I need this word. I need to hear God's question. Is your anger a good thing? Because there's another way, the way of Jesus, the way of a life rooted in love. And, and I want to be clear here, I'm not saying that injustice is no big deal and it shouldn't make us angry. Not at all. I'm not suggesting we let go of our commitment to justice. I'm talking about what we do with that anger so it does not narrow and degrade our soul. I'm talking about the load we carry inside of us and the posture from which we work for justice. And I'm looking to Jesus for help because I know how hard this is. When writing this sermon yesterday, I thought to myself, does preaching this mean that I actually need to pray for my enemies, for their well-being, for mercy, for love from God? Because I don't have the best track record on this one. But I believe that if we genuinely, if we want to be genuinely free, this is the direction Jesus points. Love your enemies and pray for them. Let your love be complete. As my friend Sarah says, this, this isn't a one and done sort of thing. It's a process, a posture, a way of life we follow over time. It's what it means to be a disciple. This is the way of Christ. Nothing more and nothing less than love. It's not easy, but I believe it can save our lives. Amen.